Uh, hey, welcome to Regen. My name is Kyle. I I'm the pastor here. Thanks, team. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Um, hey, uh, it's just been an awesome day for me. Uh, first of all, I'm messing with you, so you'll notice that we're in three sections, not two. Uh, listen, churches do this thing where they hate change. So I'm just going to change everything all the time just so that we never get used to anything. So one day you might come in and there's no chairs, just beanbags. You know what I'm saying? And uh, that's just what we're doing. Um, so, but it's also been a good day. Uh, those of you that are kind of familiar with what's happening at Regen, we, you know that we have one mission shared by two locations. Uh, we have this campus, Regen, on Sunday nights, and then another campus on the northwest side of Warren, Grace United Methodist Church, where I pastor there too. And uh, two locations, one mission, interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. Uh, and today, uh, hashtag family win. You're going to see us talking more about that. Family win. Uh, we baptized 12 people at the Grace Campus today, uh, which, yeah, that was awesome. Uh, Danny was in the tank with me, and we baptized a two-year-old, Dominic, and uh, Dominic spent, really liked getting baptized because he could just splash Danny, uh, is really why he liked it. So that was, uh, it was just, it's just been good. Like, here's what's happening both here at Regen at the Grace Campus is we're, we're part of building into a church that realizes that the most important thing is reaching the next person for Jesus and helping them become a, his disciple, helping them follow him and all the aspects of their life. And so we do that at Regen in some ways that look and feel different than that happen at the Grace Campus. But the bottom line is Jesus is the subject of the movement in both places. And so uh, we're being intentional about knowing him and loving him. And that's really where we're giving our attention tonight as we get into the last half of James chapter 2. We're going to be in James 2, 14 through 26. Um, if you're unchurched or you don't know, like, kind of your way around the Bible, that's its address. So the book of James, chapter 2, verse 14 through verse 26. At Regen, we preach through the Bible like we watch Netflix. So we start at the beginning of the show and just go all the way to the end. And so we'll finish James on uh, September 11th and then launch a new series then. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't just remind you to be praying for Danny the intern, AKA the Dan turn. Uh, Danny was drumming for us. Danny is preaching, uh, I would say his first sermon, but I guess by the time he gets to us, his second sermon uh, in a church setting next week. He and I were here practicing, and he's got James chapter 3 on the tongue and has some really powerful things to say. So be praying for him. Uh, few things are more formative in a, like a person who wants to be in ministry. Few things are so uh, formative in their life as like that first sermon. And so be praying for him. That's next week. So uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, uh, we need you. We need your uh, presence and your mind in this place with us to see you clearly. Uh, we know that when your word is explained, your voice is heard. And so help us uh, to hear you tonight. Help us in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in to hear from you. Because ultimately, um, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so uh, would you uh, bring us to rest tonight? Would you uh, tame our restlessness and help us see you afresh um, in what we hear and say uh, tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, Steph and I, along with some of her coworkers, uh, drove to Missouri for a conference. It was a conference for uh, Christians and student development, Christians working for, with, um, on Christian college campuses with Christian students, the Association for Christians and Student Development. And Steph and I were driving down to Missouri with some of her coworkers. She had to go every year 
I kind of ended up presenting uh, on a book that I wrote a couple of years ago. Um, mic drop, just to make you know I'm famous, but not. Uh, and so I went and uh, was applying these principles that I'd written about to college student development. So we're driving down there and I learned two things about the state of Missouri. Uh, the first thing about the state of Missouri is that you know the yellow stripe on the right of the highway? And in Ohio, there's the yellow stripe and then the rumble, right? In Missouri, the rumble strip and the yellow line are at the same place. And being a driver that likes to take full advantage of my lane, I, you know, I, I want to experience the left part of my lane, I want to experience the right part of my lane, I want to experience the scenery, which means I'm journeying through my lane. I lost a lot of points on my driver's test in high school because she's like, you're swerving. And it's because I just wanna, I wanna experience all that there is in this lane. And so what was happening though is about every five minutes, I would drift too far to the right, hit the yellow line and you know, and then we, okay, come back. So that earned me the nickname Rumble Strip among uh, some of Steph's coworkers because I hit the Rumble Strip a lot, which was really unfortunate for her coworkers because they were all trying to nap in the back of the van. Uh, and every five minutes they were getting jolted. But the second thing I learned about Missouri, that's a funnier story than you're giving me credit for. I just wanna let you know. Okay, that's a really good one. Um, and there are a number of emojis that you can use to turn into rumble strip, just to let you know. Uh, the second thing I learned about Missouri is that it's called the show me state. Missouri is called the show me state. And I, I did some research this weekend to find out why that is. Nobody really knows, but uh, there's this interesting thing that happened in, in uh, 1899. Uh, Missouri's then Congressman Willard Duncan Vandiver, he was a member of the US House of Representatives representing Missouri from 1897 to 1903. Uh, and he was at a naval banquet in Philadelphia. And in a speech there, he said this, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs, don't know what it is, sounds inappropriate, and Democrats, and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. He says, I am from Missouri, you have got to show me. Well, we're in this book um, of James, uh, and this is really where James and Willard Duncan Vandiver have a lot in common because when it comes to what James is gonna tell us next, he wants us to show him. He's saying, show me. James, though a resident of the uh, classic Palestinian area, might also be today's world from Missouri because he wants us to show him the work of our faith. That's ultimately what this series is about, that our faith has motion, and James wants to show a particular kind of motion. So look at verses 14 through 18 with me of chapter two. It says this, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith, James says, by my good deeds. That last, that last verse in, in verse 18, it gets to the very heart of it. How can you show me if your faith if you don't have good deeds? Because I'm gonna show you my faith by your good deeds. James is arguing that faith has motion 
and that our faith in Jesus, our trust in his gospel, invariably and undeniably leads to action. Faith by itself, hear me on this, faith by itself, no matter how heartfelt, no, no matter how deeply you've thought it through, faith by itself, James says, and it's true, is dead and useless. useless. It's really no faith at all. No sincere belief, no matter how heartfelt, no matter how much you thought it through, no matter how many books you've read, no matter how many Jesus feels you've gotten while listening to Carrie Job just belted out on Pandora, none of that does enough if, if, if there's not actions accompanying it. He says, that kind of faith can't save you. And so I want to look tonight at a couple things. I want to look at what it means for us to work out our salvation in light of some of our Christian tradition. I want to look at exactly when he says to do work, what kind of work we're supposed to do. And then I want to look at a couple objections that we might have to that. And so let's think about this for a second. The book of James has a dicey history among the people of Jesus. Uh, It is the most beat up little brother of all New Testament books because the book of James' insistence that we have faith and works, that our works show our faith, seem upon first glance to go entirely against the message of Jesus, which is this. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. This is the gospel. And so the Protestant Reformation, which sought to yank back the gospel from medieval Roman Catholicism, which was entirely works-based, an attempt on, on those the Christians of that period to earn God's affection by doing certain things, The early reformers saw the book of James as a challenge to the gospel message. And so Martin Luther actually like would rip the book of James out of his Bibles, which is kind of like buying an iPad and smashing its screen right away. We didn't just have Bibles everywhere in the 1500s. Do you know what I mean? And so like if you ripped it in flight company, everybody would kind of do like a (gasps) collective gasp. And yet Martin Luther found James' insistence that we work out our salvation in contrast to some other parts of scripture. His insistence and the insistence of the gospel is that we can neither work for nor earn the affections of our father and earn our salvation. I wanna say that out loud again. We can neither work for nor earn the affections of our Father and or, or work for or earn our salvation. We can't. I mean, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Verse 9 says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things he planned for us long ago. The universal witness of the New Testament, and for the old, that matter, the Old Testament, which is exactly the point James is making in chapter 2, 21 through 26, he appeals to the Old Testament. He's saying that, that the universal witness of all scriptures that we cannot earn our salvation, we cannot work for it, Listen to me on this. You can go to church every week. You can give a lot of money to ministries and charitable organizations. You can sing the songs. You can pray the prayers. You can be an upright and upstanding person. But apart from a deep connection and relationship, sorry, it's just the word, apart from a deep connection and relationship with Jesus, it is nothing in the eyes of God. And in fact, somewhere either Old Testament or New, it says all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And if you want to know what a filthy rag is, it basically means use toilet paper. 
all of this idea that we cannot earn our salvation or that even doing Christian things apart from Jesus is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Jesus says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed miracles in your name. But I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Engaging in outward acts of religion cannot and will not ultimately purchase the salvation that you need. It will not gain you entry into eternity with Christ. And I am always, 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 always going to preach this kind of truth to the the religious among us, that there is no amount of good things that you can do that ultimately purchase your father's affection. And this is where Jesus comes in and kicks all of this in and says, if you know me, I am the way to the father. If you know me, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and I in you, and we will do this thing forever. There has to be an intimate, personal, relational knowledge with Jesus. Faith without works cannot save us. And works without faith cannot save us. Faith without works is dead and useless. This is what James says in 2.26. Just as the body is dead without breath, so faith is dead without good works. Martin Luther and the early reformers hated this book because it seemed to say, go ahead and work for it. It said, go do nice things. That's why they didn't like this book. Since then, we've kind of balanced out on this. Dallas Willard, who is probably one of my we're going to get to heaven. Jesus is going to be there. I'll be super interested in Jesus. Then there's going to be Paul, and I'm going to be like, Paul, no. There's going to be Jonah. Nope, don't care, Jonah. No, biblical characters, no. Where's Dallas Willard? Do you know, where, where is he? I need to talk to him. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, writes this. He says, the path of spiritual growth and the riches of Christ is not a passive one. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Effort is action, earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. Want a church that's on fire. Which if you're not church, that also sounds weird. Like you want, do we set the fire? How, there's like a few Christian songs do that, like set us on fire. I don't want to sing that, that sounds weird. You've never seen people more active than, than those who have been on set of fire on the grace of God. Martin Luther wanted to warn us away from what, what Dallas Willard calls an attitude of earning our salvation because people who think they earn their salvation are jerks. People who think they've earned their place in the kingdom are mean, they're stingy, they're grumpy, and they're unkind. They're, they look down on the outcast because they think, look, I have worked so hard to get here. Don't you go be messing that up. I, they think they're something to be admired. And so, by the way, if your faith is marked mostly by anger and grumpiness, that says way more about your heart than it does about the people that you're spending your time judging. Dallas Willard says that the grace that saves us is opposed to an attitude of earning, but is not opposed to the action of effort. It is not opposed to getting down to work. As Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, work hard to show the results of your salvation 
obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Why? For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Here's what is grace-driven, gospel-founded obedience is when you find yourself wanting to do things that you would not otherwise want to do. A sign that Jesus is working in your life is that you are spending your time and your money and your energy, relational, personal, what have you, doing things that you'd rather not do and liking it. Because it is God who gives you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And so we work hard to show the results of our salvation. So then what kind of works are we to do? James says, get to work. Paul says, get to work. Jesus says, get to work. So what exactly are the works we're supposed to do? If grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort, where do we direct our effort? To what direction does our effort go? Like, where are we going? And so the first is, and this needs to be clear, the primary work that we do is the work of becoming more and more like Jesus. The primary work of the Christian life is growing in my love and affection for Jesus. The bottom line is, do I love Jesus? Do I, I'm a man, and Jesus was a man, but do I have an affection for him? This is not a gender thing. This is not a language thing. It's a, this is the baseline. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, Jesus said. And so the standard becomes what was rocking on my wrist in the 1990s, WWJD. What would Jesus do? I demonstrate my love for Jesus by doing what he would do. Again, Dallas Willard says that the call of Jesus isn't to become a churchgoer or to do nice things. The call of Jesus is to become a disciple or apprentice of Jesus. And so that means doing exactly what Jesus would do if he were in my place. If I need, my discipleship means if Jesus was your pastor, he would do X, Y, and Z, and I need to do exactly those things. Being a disciple of Jesus means if Jesus, if Jesus was married to Steph, I need to do exactly what Jesus would do for Steph as her husband. Uh, I, I need to do exactly what Jesus would do if, if he were a nephew or a friend. Whatever Jesus would do is the thing I would do that grows my affection for him. The work that Jesus wants to do is ultimately thus accomplished in that way. Guys, the love of Jesus has to be the bottom line and it is at Regen. It's not, like I have friends that are girls and they start dating somebody and I say, does he love Jesus? And somebody will eventually say, well, I mean, he goes to church. No, nope, not what I asked. I didn't ask if he went to church. I said, does he love Jesus? I said, does he love Jesus? Well, he listens to K-Love. Okay, K-Love is positive and encouraging. Okay, it is not Jesus-y, all right? It is, you know, it is not, it is not in that way. I, I wanna know, does that person love Jesus? And so the work of personal holiness is what Paul outlines in Colossians 3, 5 through 15. Go home and read it. That's the passage where like Paul gives the one of the ultimate manifestos of what it looks like to follow Jesus. He says things like, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking in you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. He says, don't be greedy. He says, don't lie to one another. Get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. He says, get rid of these things. And instead, put on love. Uh, you must close yourselves in humility, tenderhearted mercy, kindness, uh, gentleness, patience. Listen, the standard keeps getting higher. This is, this is why nobody likes church. Because Jesus is stupid. 
We like so whitewash Jesus into like this nice guy who just wants to be our buddy. Listen, if, if, if our God is a God we can control, why would I give him my time? If God is small and manageable and tameable and doesn't really make demands on my life, I don't really have that much interest in him. Because listen, I've got Oprah, I've got all these other people that are telling me what to do. How is Jesus any different? But if the standard is high and we are unapologetic about that, that makes a huge difference. So the primary work is personal holiness. Uh, the secondary work is social holiness. Let me, can I just talk about this love of Jesus thing for one more thing? Listen, guys, I am sick and tired of doing funerals for people who have spent their life in church and who, when they die and their family describes them to me, I know that I know that I know that they didn't love Jesus. I am exhausted by that. I am exhausted that they kind of had their nose to the glass of the grace of God for their whole lives and nobody came along and threw them through it. That, 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 that they never even like saw through it clearly enough and now I'm there doing their funeral as their family is saying things like, it's nice to know that he's with God and I don't say this, I do funerals very differently than I even preach right now. But in my heart of hearts, I'm like, I, I don't know if that's the case. Because let me tell you what, I've done funerals for people that love Jesus. And you know what the first thing out of their mouths are? Man, my dad loved Jesus. They show me their dad's Bible and it's like falling apart. Everybody else is like, he was a really nice man. Is that, is that all we have to say at the end of our lives? I want us to be a church that loves Jesus, that that's the baseline. So primary, primarily, the primary work is personal holiness. Personal holiness says, I'm going to love Jesus for life. I'm going to make hard decisions. I'm going to pay a price, even if it hurts sometimes. But personal holiness, and this is often where the price comes in, personal holiness is nothing if there is not social holiness. When you walked in, when you drove in tonight, there was a word called Methodist. There, we are under the auspices of the Methodist church. I usually don't lead with that, but here we are, and they like, they like us, so we're just going to keep going with this. But at the core of being Methodist is this tangible connection between personal holiness and social holiness, that my love for Jesus inevitably will impact people, which is exactly where James is starting to go with Faith Has Works. Uh, and the works that James wants us to do, he already outlines in the book. When you're studying the Bible, guys, always look in, in and around the text you're looking at for the answers. This is why I don't like Bible studies where we like ask a question about the Bible and the t answer's like right here and we're like looking up in the air for an answer. I'm like, no, it's right here. It's right here. And so James 1.27, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. James 2.8, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal laws found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.15 through 16, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day and stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Listen, the works that James has in mind aren't like coming to church and like doing some setup and then going home, although we need that to happen as, as regen. It means that the least, the last, and the lost in our community have have added benefit to their lives because of my faith. That it's not like I come and I sing my songs and I go home and nobody knows it's different. That there's something that happens on the outside of what happens in this room. This is vital for you to understand. And so let me, let me stop here and just make something really clear. Some of you are new to this Jesus thing and I love it. I love it. I love that we're a church where like people that were unchurched are stepping across the line of faith and kind of playing in the sandbox and trying to figure this stuff out. 
And so what happens is you start going to church and you're singing the songs and you're talking about Jesus and you're thinking like, man, I am so into this Jesus guy right now. Like I went to church six weeks ago. Like I am doing it. You know, those of us who are raised in church, I mean, like, you know that like, you gotta be sick, sick, sick to not go. Do you know what I mean? Like you gotta be sick. And, but if you're new to Jesus, like, well, I went like three months ago and have since thought about Jesus once. I am on fire. Do you know what I mean? It starts to grow. Here's what I, I don't want to happen. I don't want us to then, all right, I'm going to be at church every week. I'm going to sing the songs. I'm going to hang out with the people. I'm going to do this and that. Because eventually that becomes tedious. Because you start to think, well, gosh, they put the sermons online. So I could probably just listen online. And there's this other thing tonight. I don't really like the music. I could skip this. I could skip that. And, and pretty soon it, it just falls apart for you. But let me tell you guys, the mission for Regen for this year has to be serving other people. And, and not to like make something said out loud that'd be really uncomfortable. Like we got to get our hands on people. See, I shouldn't even say that. Like that's a little uncomfortable. Total caveat. So some kids at the Grace Campus are running around. I've been chasing them around a lot. Like the new game right now is whoever sees each other first and goes pew pew, like wins. And now we're creating all these schemes to hide from each other. Well, the kids are hiding in my office to get to me and da-da-da-da-da. And Steph, walking down the hall, hears one of the kids yell out, can you touch my butt? Or something like that. <laughs> Not the thing we ever want to hear in a pastor's office. No, no butt touching of any age, really. You know what I mean? And um, we don't want to get our hands on people, but we've got to get face-to-face with people. We've got to serve. And because let me tell you what, that's the difference. It's when, I'm, I'm looking at Caitlin. I mean, this, it's when we went, and Audrey, it's when we went to Africa. It's when we did the missions trips. It's when we like got hands-on and face-to-face with people that really needed Jesus that this became real. Before that, I mean, it was kind of some nice things to think and say and do. But when it got real was when we started serving other people that really needed to know Jesus. And so I will do you a disservice if this year we do not get really intentional about creating opportunities to serve. And I'm not talking about let's get the mugs out. I'm not talking about who's going to light the candles. That's vital. I'm talking about like poverty is rampant. I'm talking about dozens upon dozens upon, I mean, the bodies are just stacking up and their blood is filled with heroin. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm talking about. This is, this is the, this, Jesus said to me six months ago, it's time for Regen to grow up. So we're growing up. We're all going to grow up. We're going to get our hands on people. Sorry for that, but now it's memorable. And now some of us have been in the church for a long time. And so you think you get this down. Like I grew up in church. Like I, I went to Bible college. I, at some point, it starts to feel like there's not too many surprises left. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like I, I have watched the West Wing. I am on my fifth run through right now because the po- political season has me so depressed. If I can't have the political season I, I want, I can at least get it on the television. Do you know what I mean? And so I want to watch Jed Bartlett win the election and the nomination again and again. That's just, just what I'm going to do. And so there's no surprises left in the West Wing. I mean, it is down to, oh, this is the part where Josh says this thing. I mean, it's starting to get actually sad. Now I'm sad. You know what I mean? Now I'm that sad guy that's watching that. And so what happens is we, we start to coast because we've been raised in the church and, oh, there's not a lot of surprises left. We'll keep doing it because we do it. And I don't even want to tell the baby Christians in the room that like one day the fire is going to fade because <laughs> I don't want you to know that. And yet... Um, my boss retired in June, and so Steph and I helped put together a video of people at the first church campus over in Warren, where he retired from, to kind of get a vibe of, just to kind of thank them for their ministry. And Janie McGeo, late 80s, we say, 
what is the thing that you've learned from Pastor Rick's ministry? And she says, how far I still have to go. I'm like thinking, girl, you're almost there, man. Like either Jesus is going to come back or you're going. I mean, you're there. You're on the, you're there. And yet she said, I've got so much further to go. Listen, we can't get to this point where we now start doing a little bit of this and doing a little bit of that and doing a little bit of this and doing a little bit of that. It's really about this all life call about faith without works is dead. The real power of the gospel is when we serve people. The real power comes when we serve people, when we're out there and we're doing it. That's when the, that's when the apostles grew. It's when Jesus was like, go heal people. They were like, all right, Jesus, whatever. And then they go and they're like, all right, be healed. And the guy was healed. And they're like, bro, did you see that? I just healed that guy. You know, that's when it got real. It wasn't real when it was like campfire time with Jesus. That gets boring after a while. And so the message of James is that faith without works is dead. We can't earn our salvation. That's good news for those of us raised in homes where religion was the thing. It's good news that I, I, I can't just like keep doing the right thing and get God to like me more because it also means that I can't get, do stupid things and make God love me less. Man, that's freeing. It's about having a heart that's aligned with Jesus that does these works. Two caveats though. James catches us on what I would call two yeah buts. So we hear this, faith without works is dead. We got to get to work. We got to love Jesus. And there's a part of you that's going, yeah, but. And these yeah, buts are what James kind of hits in uh, 18, 19, and 20. The first yeah, but is when James says, now some may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. See, here's what we do. You know, some people can go have the good deeds. They can, they can serve. They can do this. My faith is very personal and very private. I'm just going to be very quiet about it. Listen, our faith is tremendously personal. I mean, Jesus is all up on that. Do you know what I mean? And yet, what we do then is we want to, like, kind of make it private. Because what were we taught by our moms? We don't talk about money, politics, or religion at the dinner table. Can I tell you the three things that Jesus talks about most are money, politics, and religion? Okay, and so now what we're doing is we were doing this, yeah, but like, uh, I'll let like Kyle do the serving. Like Danny goes to Bible college, let's let Danny do it. And I'll just be over here and I'll have my faith, just me. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, faith apart from works is dead. If you wanna do this, like you have faith, I'll have deeds, let's divvy up the labor, everything will be fine. James is like, no, 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 no. Because if you wanna say those people have deeds and that's great for them, I'm gonna have the faith. James says, you don't have the faith at all. The first yeah, but is no, 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 no. You got to get to work. There's got to be some sort of tangible outpouring of what's going on in your heart. That's the first yeah, but. The second one I think is interesting. And it's going to be a temptation that a church like Regen is going to face. It's going to be a temptation of a church where we make a lot of the Bible. It's going to be us. He says, you say you have faith, but you believe that, and you believe that there's one God. He's good for you, is what he says. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without works is dead and useless? Here's the temptation you're going to feel like. I go to church. My pastor's pretty smart. He tells me things, and now I know them. And now I'm good. Like, hey, I, I have a, if you're going to stick with this James series, you're going to have a better than average understanding of the message and point of the book of James. You just are. Because we're like in deep on this. We're spending 30 or 40 minutes going through like half a chapter at a time. 
And so you're going to think, I'm pretty smart. Like, I know the Christian things. I get that. And James is like, intellectual assent doesn't matter. Why? Because demons believe the intellect. I mean, demons know what is true. You know, you can get a demon to recite the Nicene Creed backward and forward. That doesn't mean they believe it. it. That just gives them a better opportunity to twist it. It's not about intellectual assent. That doesn't just do it. It can't just be about knowing the right things. James says, how foolish, can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? There's gotta be this thing in your head has to become some sort of tangible action. And it is, guys, I see you like taking these steps and I'm so encouraged and I just want this to be like, keep going. I don't want it to be like, bam, you're stupid. I want it to continue to cast this vision for what could happen. So those are yeah buts, and James is so good at them. In 21 through 26, James kind of goes through some Old Testament examples to show how faith without works is dead. But then in verse 26, he ends with this, this little line. I love it. He says, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. As the body is dead without breath, so faith without works is dead. Can I ask you to do something for me? And I'm serious. On the count of three, we're going to hold our breath as a group. On the count of three, we're going to hold our breath, all right? One, two, three. Aren't you glad that I'm not like, what if I just did that to show you off that I had like amazing holding my breath skills? Like what if that had nothing to do with it? What if I was just like two minutes from now, I'm like still rocking it. No. Holding your breath is hard. If I said, hold your breath now, run around the building. Wouldn't happen. If I said, hold your breath, let's, let's do this next thing, you wouldn't do it. Why is it easier? Why? or let's put it this way, why is it harder for us to go without physical breath than it is for us to go without spiritual breath? Why is it easier for us to physically go without breath? And hold it on for a second, but why is it that, where is that pressure in our chest that says, dear God, give me oxygen? When we're living in this faith without works place, can I tell you what it is? That pressure on your chest is this. It's this passage. The pressure on your chest is this passage saying, guys, we got to get to work. We got to take Jesus seriously. We got to love him. We got to know him. And we've got to get it, our heads wrapped around his grace to such a point that we're very serious about praying. God, help me see people the way you see people. I'll break my heart for what breaks your heart. Help me point someone to Jesus today. It gets for real in that moment. That's when it gets real. That's what Jesus is asking of us. He's like, he's looking at his people and saying, would you all stop holding your breath? And would you get to work? That's where the growth is. That's where we're going this year. And, and I'm really excited about it. And we, and we celebrated Jesus whose obedience was perfect unto death so that we could even have the grace to kind of hold our spiritual breath for a minute. We celebrated Jesus whose works were perfect even in our imperfection. And his perfection purchases our freedoms that even in our imperfections, he, there's affection for us. And that's what we're gonna celebrate here in communion. So would you pray with me? Jesus, sorry that we hold our breath. 
I'm sorry that we, that I live outside the bounds, that there's just works that you're calling me to do and I instantly have something better to do. I'm sorry that I'm so distracted by Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and all of these things in my life to notice what's going on around me. Jesus, I pray for us that we would be people who get to work. I pray for us as a church that we'd be a church that gets to work, that we'd move beyond intellectual assent or just having faith while others do the deeds, but that, Lord Jesus, that we would fully embody your gospel, which says get to work, impact those people around you. Help us to know your power. God, I'm so grateful that the text says it is God who works in you to give you the desire and the power to do it. He says, oh, thank you, Jesus. Because if it was just up to me, I probably wouldn't get to work. I'd still be watching the fifth run of, of West Wing on Netflix. And so Jesus, free our hearts from these lesser things. Help us to reprioritize our time so that we would know and serve those who need it most, those you're calling us to. And use this meal to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.